1: it's monday october 18th i'm oscar ramirez from the daily dive podcast in los angeles and this is reopening america what happens when you order things online and send them back you may think it makes its way back to the shelf and on its way to another person but that is rarely true oftentimes items make their way to bulk resellers overseas they're stripped for parts or just thrown away returns are a big problem for companies that are expected to have generous return policies as a default these reverse logistics are many times cost prohibitive to deal with. Amanda Mull, staff writer at The Atlantic, joined us for the nasty logistics of returning your online items. Thanks for joining us, Amanda. Thank you for having me. I wanted to talk about an interesting story you wrote, the nasty logistics of returning items that you might've bought online. It's kind of baked into, you know, all sorts of businesses now, these, uh, You know, buy a bunch of different sizes, buy a bunch of different items and return anything you want free shipping, free returns. But, you know, what happens when you do return those items? A lot of times things are thrown away. Sometimes they're shipped to other countries to be resold. There's really a lot of waste that goes with it. And part of it, you know, obviously, the clothing is such a huge part of online sales right now. For myself, I've, A little old school still. I I like to go into the stores, try things on. So if it doesn't fit, you know, I'm buying the right price. But the way online shopping has gone now and, you know, how so many people buy things online, you'll buy multiple sizes, you know, whatever fits, doesn't, everything gets turned back. And the reverse logistics of this, sending things back is kind of a mess. So Amanda, start us off a little bit with what we're seeing here.
0: Like you mentioned there are these sort of like the suite of behaviors that online shopping has incentivized people into and sometimes not just incentivized, but explicitly encouraged people to adopt ordering multiple sizes, ordering stuff you're not sure about it with the promise that you can return it in 30 days or in a year or in six months or however long with no risk and with a full refund, things like that. These promises, these incentives exist in order to convert people from shopping in person, which is what people have done since the dawn of time, since as long as we've had commerce, to shopping online. And for a lot of types of purchases, clothing, shoes, cosmetics in particular, it was a little bit difficult to encourage people to start ordering these things on the internet because personal taste in Uh, fit, and sort of the indescribable qualities of something matter a lot to a person in these types of purchases. So in order to convert people to online shopping and to get them used to buying more and more types of goods on the internet, retailers basically had to set up this litany of policies to make people feel comfortable doing that, to take away all of the risk from buying a pair of jeans on the internet instead of driving to the mall and buying it in person. And That has really sort of shaped the way that people understand online shopping and that people understand what will happen after they buy something and their expectations of how stores will act. If they want to send something back. So, we're in a situation where people who shop online for shoes, for clothes, for cosmetics, for home furnishings, for literally anything, expect to be able to buy a bunch of stuff they don't know if they actually want or don't know if it will fit and return it and get their full refund and have weeks or sometimes months in order to do that.
1: Yeah, it, it, um, it's really baked in now. And there's, I know there's people that shop specifically on that. It's like, if they don't have a good return policy, then, you know, I'm going to take my business elsewhere
0: people really expect these types of policies when they're looking to make a purchase online now because it's been really widely adopted. And there's a lot of consumer research showing that if your company does not offer, you know, at the very least a 30-day full money-back guarantee Mm -hmm. policy, then people just won't order stuff from you. And the competition is so stiff online that, that retailers can't really afford to not offer these policies. So you get people ordering a lot of stuff that they're not sure about, a lot of stuff that might not fit, and sending it back. And as a consumer, once you've turned something over to the post office, dropped it in the mail, whatever, your visibility of of what happens to that thing basically ends. Um, And that is largely by design. (laughs) because I think that if people understood what happened after they returned something this way or what might happen, they would be a lot less likely to buy as much as they do. And it's in the best interest of stores for you to buy a lot.
1: Totally. And you know, your, your story in that sense was pretty eye opening. So let's talk about the scope of this real quick. Estimates vary, but in the past year they say that one third to one half of all clothing bought in the U S came from the internet. So when you're talking about return rates, The average brick-and-mortar store has a return rate in the single digits. But online, this is anywhere from 15 to 30%. And retailers took back more than $100 billion in merchandise sold online. So we're talking about a lot of stuff coming back. Now, let's get into some of the messy part. What happens when stuff gets sent back? Like I said, it'll go to bulk resellers sometimes. Sometimes, you know, if they're electronics or something, they'll be stripped for parts. And a lot of times, things are just plainly thrown away.
0: What happens after you return something depends largely on what that thing is. If it's a dress from a fast fashion store, a lot of times that will just be thrown away. Because if you, if you look at the numbers of it and the companies who sell this stuff are just going on math, they're not going on anything else by one estimate, every return costs a, a retailer ten to twenty dollars before you factor in the cost of shipping in either direction. So if you are, you know, sending something back at the end of the return policy, which might be 30 days, might be 60 days, and it's a fast fashion dress, then it's not clear, it's not obvious whether or not that thing will even still be for sale on the retailer's website for it to be restocked and sent to somebody else. It's also not clear whether that thing can be, can be sold at full price if it is still stocked. Because fast fashion in particular turns over so fast, and because it, its fit tends to be really variable, the quality of goods tends to be really unpredictable, it has yeah. both really high return rates and really pretty bad rates of restocking.
1: That's why in some cases they even just say hey we'll keep that size maybe gift it to somebody else we're going to send you the right size it's like we don't even want to deal with it coming back just hand it off to somebody else.
0: And retailers like Amazon, Target, I think Walmart also have started just telling people to keep stuff that they want to return in the past couple of years which is sort of giving away the game here because if they're not taking it back it's because they would lose money taking it back. So this whole process for one item is often just too expensive to accommodate some of the cheap stuff that people buy, and people buy it by the container load. So when that happens, things are either going to be thrown away, just put directly into a landfill, or they're going to be offloaded to a sort of gray market that not a lot of people are aware of, in that stuff gets sold off by the pound, by the pallet, by the container load. Some of that will go to outlet stores, off-price stores, TJ Maxx, things like that, big lots, to be sold again, hopefully, and if not, then probably thrown away. Or it gets sold to middlemen who ship it overseas and piece by piece go through it and see what they might be able to sell to people in poorer countries through stores there. And then what they don't think they can sell in stores there gets thrown away. So it becomes a trash problem in another country. But it's really hard (laughs) to keep track of what happens to any of this after it's off the initial retailer's books. They aren't keeping track.
1: You move so naturally through your article, that's why I always appreciate your writing. You make a note in the article. So here's the point where you start thinking, why don't people start donating this stuff more? Why don't companies donate this? And that's another problem too with with money, obviously. you know the, you, there's a thing called brand dilution. You start giving away things too much, it's going to make uh, you know some of your other stuff seem less valuable. So it's not in their best interest to even donate things that are really just going to be going to waste.
0: And you especially get into this with things that are sort of like upmarket branded. So name brand, shoes, clothing, things like that. There there have been a, a number of distinct scandals over the years with particular luxury brands who have been caught destroying, burning, shredding piles of winter coats and things like that, which are, are things that you know people in the United States need. That's under no circumstances something that everybody has access to here. But those things end up destroyed because... The calculation that brands do is that if they start clothing poor people, essentially with their with their wares and with their brand name, then the people who buy their stuff for full price are going to decide that it's not worth that anymore. So their branding, theoretically, cannot survive right. charity. And like I said, there's no regulation on what businesses uh, are supposed to do with their excess stock. So they are absolutely free and clear if they make the calculation to destroy this stuff instead of giving
1: it to people who could use it. The retail logistics industry is in two parts. The forward logistics, which is all the stuff, moving it from the manufacturers all the way down to us. Reverse logistics is what we're talking about right now that gets really messy. It's expensive for the companies to take it back. And as we've been discussing, a lot of times doesn't get restocked, any of that. So what do Companies say about this? I mean, this is a, it seems to be a threat, at least money wise, you know, how this baked in idea now that everything should be able to be returned regardless, it's expensive. So, what do companies uh, say about it? What are they doing about it?
0: This is one of those sort of rare topics in consumerism where basically everyone involved agrees that this is bad and that we wish it weren't like this. Right. Um, Reverse logistics. Two different experts that I spoke to for the article used the word nasty to describe it. It is really expensive, labor intensive, sometimes literally gross work to do. They would rather not have to deal with it. They would rather find good ways to to limit their returns and to ensure that more people who bought from their stores actually kept their merchandise. That would make a lot of things about their businesses a lot easier. But they've got a consumer base that has a lot of choices and that has has been incentivized into a certain set of behaviors that really nobody is willing to let go of. I think that, you know, as far as everyone I spoke to and and what I know about the consumer industry, what would probably have to happen for this to change to any significant extent would have to be some sort of regulation on on how retailers are allowed to dispose of their extras. You know, probably Amazon deciding that they just don't want to play this game anymore yeah. and that you're going to have to keep your stuff if you order it and relying on the fact that they are so big and so deeply woven into so many people's lives to cushion the fact that they would probably lose some customers over that. And then once the big boys do it, the smaller companies are sort of free to move in line with those policies. But until until someone with some real power decides that this is something that's not going to be tolerated anymore, I think people are just going to end up continuing to engage in this behavior and for a lot of people like if you live in a rural area if you don't have reliable transportation if you wear a size outside of a really narrow norm if you are disabled in certain ways that make it harder to use physical stores for you or if you just live in a place where a lot of the stores have closed because everybody shops online now you know you might not have a lot of great options except ordering three sizes of one thing (laughs) on the internet and trying to figure out you know what your size is in a new store or something like that even if you don't want to partake in that behavior even if you understand that it's bad there are just a lot of circumstances that sort of push you into it because that is how the retail powers that be have decided that this is going to work
1: it's just so interesting in a time when we're hearing constant stories about supply chain issues and manufacturing problems this is that flip side of the stuff once you get your stuff and you send it back is But for whatever reason, it gets just as messy. So it's a great article. I suggest everybody go out and read the whole thing. Amanda Mull, staff writer at The Atlantic. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this has been Reopening America. Don't forget that for today's big news stories, you can check me out on the Daily Dive podcast every Monday through Friday. So follow us on iHeartRadio or wherever you get your podcasts.